This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Derelict by William Hope Hodgson. It's read for us by Mike Vendetti, and we'll be discussing it afterwards. Tales of the Sea, of the Deep Waters, of the Unending Horizon, are rife with the inexplicable and mysterious. Seamen seem to absorb something from the endless expanses that touch their imagination, and produce yarns unlike those of landlocked men. Perhaps it is the loneliness of ships that makes this difference, so that when a ship sinks, often no others in the world will know of it, and it will seem as inexplicable a disappearance as if some power of evil had grasped the vessel and all its hapless crew and snatched them from the face of the earth. And those chilling apparitions of the waters, derelicts, give added power to this feeling, like corpses that refuse to be buried. William Hope Hodgson, who knew of the sea as only a seaman could, clothed one of these derelicts with such a throb of terror as will make this story one that you will remember for a long time after. The Derelict by William Hope Hodgson I'm Mike Vendetti It's the material, said the old chip's doctor. The material plus the conditions, and maybe, he added slowly, a third factor, yes, a third factor. But there, there he broke off his half-meditative sentence and began to charge his pipe. "'Go on, doctor,' we said encouragingly, and with more than a little expectancy. We were in the smoke-room of the Sandala, running across the North Atlantic, and the doctor was a character. He concluded the charging of his pipe and lit it, then settled himself and began to express himself more fully. Uh, the material, he said with conviction, is inevitably the medium of expression of the life force, the fulcrum, as it were, lacking which it is unable to exert itself, or, indeed, to express itself in any form or fashion that would be intelligible or evident to us. So potent is the share of the material in the production of that thing which we name life and so eager the life-force to express itself, that I am convinced it would, if given the right conditions, make itself manifest even through so hopeless seeming a medium as a simple block of sawn wood. For I tell you, gentlemen, the life-force is both as fiercely urgent and as indiscriminate as fire the destructor yet which some are now growing to consider the very essence of life rampant. There is a quaint-seeming paradox there, he concluded, nodding his old gray head. Yes, doctor, I said. In brief, your argument is that life is a thing, state, fact, or element. Call it what you like, 
which requires the material through which to manifest itself, and that given the material plus the conditions, the result is life. In other words, that life is an evolved product, manifested through matter, and bred of conditions, eh? As we understand the word, said the old doctor, though, mind you, there may be a third factor, but in my heart I believe that it is a matter of chemistry, conditions, and a suitable medium. But given the conditions, the brute is so almighty that it will seize upon anything through which to manifest itself. It is a force generated by conditions, but nevertheless, this does not bring us one iota nearer to its explanation, any more than to the explanation of electricity or fire. They are all three of the outer forces, monsters of the void. Nothing we can do will create any one of them. Our power is merely to be able, by providing the conditions, to make each one of them manifest to our physical senses. Am I clear? Yes, doctor, in a way you are, I said. But I don't agree with you, though I think I understand you. Electricity and fire are both what I might call natural things. But life is an abstract something, a kind of all-permeating wakefulness. Oh, I can't explain it. Who could? But it's spiritual, not just a thing bred out of a condition like fire, as you say, or electricity. It's a horrible thought of yours. Life's a kind of spiritual mystery. Easy, my boy, said the old doctor, laughing gently to himself or else I may be asking you to demonstrate the spiritual mystery of life, of the limpet, or the crab, shall we say. He grinned at me with ineffable perverseness. Anyway, he continued, as I suppose you've all guessed, I have a yarn to tell you in support of my impression that life is no more a mystery or a miracle than fire or electricity. But please, to remember, gentlemen, that because you've succeeded in naming and making good use of these two forces, they're just as much mysteries, fundamentally, as ever. And anyway, the thing I'm going to tell you won't explain the mystery of life, but only give you one of my pegs on which I hang my feeling that life is, as I have said, a force made manifest through conditions that is to say, natural chemistry, and that it can take for its purpose and need the most incredible and unlikely matter. For without matter it cannot come into existence. It cannot become manifest. I don't agree with you, doctor, I interrupted. Your theory would destroy all belief in life after death. It would... Hush, Sonny, said the old man with a quiet little smile of comprehension. Hark to what I have to say first. And anyway, what objection have you to material life after death? And if you object to a material framework, I would still have you remember that I am speaking of life, as we understand the word in this our life. 
Now do be a quiet lad, or I'll never be done. It was when I was a young man, and that is a good many years ago, gentlemen. I had passed my examinations, but was so run down with overwork that it was decided that I had better take a trip to sea. I was by no means well off and very glad, in the end, to secure a nominal post as doctor in a sailing passenger clipper running out to China. name of the ship was the Bay Ost. Soon after I had got all my gear aboard, she cast off, and we dropped down the Thames. Next day we were well away out in the channel. Captain's name was Gannington, a very decent man, though quite illiterate. The first mate, Barley's, was a quiet, sternish, reserved man, very well read. Second mate, Mr. Selvern, was perhaps by birth and upbringing the most socially cultured of the three, but he lacked the stanima and indomitable pluck of the two others. He was more of a sensitive and emotionally and even mentally the most alert man of the three. On our way out, we called at Madagascar, where we landed some of our passengers. Then we ran eastward, meaning to call at Northwest Cape. But about a hundred degrees east, we encountered very dreadful weather, which carried away all our sails and sprung the jib-boom and the foregallant mast. Storm carried us northward for several hundred miles, and when it dropped us finally, we found ourselves in a very bad state. The ship had been strained and had taken some three feet of water through her seams. The main top mast had been sprung, in addition to the jib boom, and the foregallant mast. Two of our four boats had gone, as also one of the pigsties. With three fine pigs, these latter having been washed overboard, but some half hour before the wind began to ease, which it did very quickly, though a very ugly sea ran for some hours after. The wind left us just before dark, and when morning came it brought splendid weather. A calm, mildly undulating sea and a brilliant sun with no wind. It showed us also that we were not alone. For about two miles away to the westward was another vessel, which Mr. Selvern, the second mate, pointed out to me. "'That's a pretty rum-looking packet, doctor,' he said, and handed me his glass. I looked through it at the other vessel and saw what he meant, at least I thought I did. "'Yes, Mr. Severn,' I said. "'She's got a pretty old-fashioned look about her.' He laughed at me in his pleasant way. "'It's easy to see you're not a sailor, doctor,' he remarked. "'There's a dozen rum things about her. She's a derelict, and has been floating about by the look of her for many a score of years. Look at the shape of her counter and the bows and cutwater. She's as old as the hills, as you might say, and ought to have gone down to Davy Jones a good while ago. Look at the growth on her and the thickness of her standing rigging.' That's all salt and crustaceans, I fancy, if you notice the white color. She's been a small bark, but don't you see, she's not a yard left aloft. They've all dropped out of the slings, everything rotted away. Wonder the standing rigging hasn't gone too. I wish the old man would let us take the boat and have a look at her. She'd be well worth it. 
There seemed little chance, however, of this, for all hands were turned to and kept hard at it all day long, repairing the damage to the masts and gear. And this took a long while, as you may think. But at the time I gave a hand, heaving on one of the deck captains, for the exercise was good for my liver. Old Captain Gannington proved, and I persuaded him to come along and try some of the same medicine, which he did. And we got very chummy over the job. We got to talking about the derelict, and he remarked how lucky we were not to have run full tilt onto her in the darkness, for she lay right away to leeward of us, according to the way that we had been drifting in the storm. He also was of the opinion that she had a strange look about her, and that she was pretty old, but on his latter point he plainly had far less knowledge than the second mate, for he was, as I have said, an illiterate man and knew nothing of sea-craft beyond what experience had taught him. He lacked the book-knowledge which the second mate had of vessels previous to his day, which it appears the derelict was. "'She's an old un, doctor,' was the extent of observations in his direction. Yet when I mentioned to him that it would be interesting to go aboard and give her a bit of an overhaul, he nodded his head as if the idea had been already in his mind and accorded with his own inclinations. "'When the work's over, doctor,' he said, "'can't spare the men now, you know. Got to get all shipshape and ready as smart as we can. But we'll take my gig and go off in the second dog watch. The glass is steady, and it'll be a bit of a gam for us.' That evening, after tea, the captain gave orders to clear the gig and get her overboard. The second mate was to come with us, and the skipper gave him the word to see that two or three lamps were put into the boat, as it would soon fall dark. A little later we were pulling across the calmness of the sea with a crew of six at the oars and making very good speed of it. Now, gentlemen, I have detailed you with great exactness all the facts, both big and little, so that you can follow step by step each incident in this extraordinary affair, and I want you now to pay the closest attention. I was sitting in the stern sheets with the second mate and the captain who was steering, and as we drew nearer and nearer to the stranger I studied her with an ever-growing attention, as, indeed, did the captain Gannington and the second mate. She was, as you know, to the westward of us, and the sunset was making a great flame of red light to the back of her, so that she showed a little blurred and indistinct by reason of the halation of the light, which almost defeated the eye in any attempt to see her rotting spars and standing rigging, submerged, as they were, in the fiery glory of the sunset. It was because of this effect of the sunset that we had come quite close, comparatively, to the derelict before we saw that she was all surrounded by a sort of curious scum, the color of which was difficult to decide upon by reason of the red light that was in the atmosphere, but which afterwards we discovered to be brown. The scum spread all about the old vessel for many hundreds of yards in a huge, irregular patch a great stretch of which reached out to the eastward upon the starboard side of the boat some score or so fathoms away. 
Queer stuff, said Captain Gannington, leaning to the side and looking over. Something in the cargo as says gone rotten and worked out to her seams. Look at her bows and stern, said the second mate. Just look at the growth on her. There were, as he said, great clumpings of strange-looking sea fungi under the bows and the short counter-stern. From the stump of her jib-boom and her cutwater, great beards of rime and marine growths hung downward into the scum and held her in. Her blank starboard side was presented to us. All a dead, dirtyish white, streaked and mottled vaguely with dull masses of heavier color. "'There's a steam or haze rising off her,' said the second mate, speaking again. "'You can see it against the light. Keeps coming and going. Look!' I saw then what he meant. A faint haze or steam, either suspended above the old vessel or rising from her. And Captain Gannington saw it also. "'Spontaneous combustion!' he exclaimed. We'd have to watch when we lift the hatches, unless it's some poor devil that's got aboard of her. But that ain't likely. We were now within a couple of hundred yards of the old derelict, and had entered into the brown scum. As it poured off the lifted oars, I heard one of the men utter to himself, Damn, Treagle! And indeed, it was not something unlike it. As the boat continued to forge nearer and nearer to the old ship, the scum grew thicker and thicker, so that at last it perceptibly slowed us. "'Give way, lads, put some beef to it,' sang out Captain Gannington, and thereafter there was no sound except the panting of the men and the faint, reiterated suck, suck of the swollen brown scum upon the oars as the boat was forced ahead. As we went, I was conscious of a peculiar smell in the evening air, and whilst I had no doubt that the pudding of the scum by the oars made it rise, I could give no name to it, yet, in a way, it was vaguely familiar. We were now very close to the old vessel, and presently she was high above us against the dying light. The captain called out then to in with the bow oars and stand by with the boat hooks, which was done. Aboard there, ahoy, aboard there, ahoy, shouted Captain Gannington. But there came no answer, only the dull sound of his voice going lost into the open sea each time he sang out. Ahoy, aboard there, ahoy. He shouted time after time, but there was only the weary silence of the old hulk that answered us. And somehow, as he shouted the while that I stared up half expectantly at her, a queer little sense of oppression that amounted almost to nervousness came upon me. It passed, but I remember how I was suddenly aware that it was growing dark. Darkness came fairly rapidly in the tropics, though not so quickly as many fiction writers seem to think. But it was not that the coming dusk had perceptibly deepened in that brief time of only a few moments, but rather that my nerves had made me suddenly a little hypersensitive. I mention my state particularly, for I am not a nervy man normally, and my abrupt touch of nerves is significant in the light of what happened. 
"'There's no one aboard there,' said Captain Gannington. "'Give way, men,' for the boat's crew had instinctively rested on their oars as the captain hailed the old craft. The men gave way again, and then the second mate called out excitedly, "'Why, look there! There's our pigsty! See, it's got beef painted on the end. It's drifted down here, and the scum caught it. What a blessed wonder!' It was, as he had said, our pigsty that had washed overboard in the storm, and most extraordinary to come across it here. "'We'll tow it off with us when we go,' said the captain, and shouted to the crew to get down to their oars, for they were hardly moving the boat, because the scum was so thick close in around the old ship that it literally clogged the boat from moving. I remember that it struck me in a half-conscious sort of way, it's curious that the pigsty containing our three dead pigs had managed to drift in so far unaided, whilst we could scarcely manage to force the boat in, now that we had come right into the scum. But the thought passed from my mind, for so many things happened within the next few minutes. The men managed to bring the boat in alongside within a couple of feet of the derelict, and the man with the boat hook hooked on. "'Have you got old air, Farad?' asked Captain Gannington. "'Yes, sir,' said the bowman. And as he spoke, there came a queer noise of tearing. "'What's that?' asked the captain. "'It's tore, sir. Tore clean away,' said the man, and his tone showed that he had received something of a shock. "'Get old again, then,' said the Captain Gannington irritably. "'You don't suppose this packet was built yesterday?' Shove the hook into the main chains. The man did so gingerly, as you might say, for it seemed to me in the growing dusk that he put no strain on the hook, though of course there was no need. You see, the boat could not go very far by herself in the stuff in which she was embedded. I remember thinking this also as I looked up at the bulging side of the old vessel. Then I heard Captain Gannington's voice. Lord, but she's old! And what a color, Doctor! She don't half want paint, do she? Now then, somebody, one of them oars. An oar was passed to him, and he leant it up against the ancient bulging side. Then he paused and called to the second mate to light a couple of lamps and stand by to pass them up. For darkness had settled down now upon the sea. The second mate lit two of the lamps and told one of the men to light a third and keep it handy in the boat. Then he stepped across, with a lamp in each hand, to where Captain Gannington stood by the oar against the side of the ship. "'Ah, my lad,' said the captain to the man who had pulled stroke, "'up with ye, and we'll pass ye up the lamps.' The man jumped to obey, caught the oar, and put his weight upon it. And as he did so, something seemed to give way a little. "'Look!' cried the second mate, and pointed lamp in hand. It's sunk in. This was true. The oar had made an indentation into the bulging, somewhat slimy side of the old vessel. Mold, I reckon, said Captain Gannington, bending toward the derelict to look. Then to the man, Up you go, my lad, and be smart. Don't stand there waiting. At that the man, who had paused a moment as he felt the oar give beneath his weight, began to shin up and in a few seconds he was aboard, and leant out over the rail for the lamps. 
These were passed up to him, and the captain called to him to steady the oar. Then Captain Gannington went, calling to me to follow, and after me the second mate. As the captain put his face over the rail, he gave a cry of astonishment. Mold, by gum, mold! Tons of it! Good Lord! As I heard him shout that, I scrambled the more eagerly after him, and in a moment or two I was able to see what he meant. Everywhere that the light from the two lamps struck, there was nothing but smooth, great masses and surfaces of a dirty white-colored mold. I climbed over the rail with the second mate close behind, and stood upon the mold-covered decks. There might have been no planking beneath the mold for all that our feet could feel. It gave under our tread with a spongy, puddingy feel. It covered the deck furniture of the old ship so that the shape of each article and fitment was often no more than suggested through it. Captain Gannington snatched a lamp from the man, and the second mate reached for the other. They held the lamps high, and we all stared. It was most extraordinary and somehow most abominable. I can think of no other word, gentlemen, that so much describes the predominant feeling that affected me at the moment. Good Lord, said Captain Gannington several times. Good Lord. But neither the second mate nor the man said anything, and for my part I just stared and at the same time began to smell a little at the air, for there was a vague odor of something half-familiar that somehow brought me to a sense of half-known fright. I turned this way and that, staring, as I have said. Here and there the mold was so heavy as to entirely disguise what lay beneath, covering the deck fittings into indistinguishable mounds of mold all dirty white and blotched and veined with irregular dull purplish markings. There was a strange thing about that mold which Captain Gannington drew attention to. It was that our feet did not crush into it and break the surface as might have been expected, but merely indented it. Never seen nothing like it before, never! said the captain, after having stooped with his lamp to examine the mold under our feet. He stamped with his heel, and the mold gave out a dull, puttingly sound. He stooped again with a quick movement and stared, holding the lamp close to the deck. Blessed if it ain't a regular skin to it. The second mate and the man and I all stooped and looked at it. The second mate pronged it with his forefinger, and I remember I rapped it several times with my knuckles, listening to the dead sound it gave out, and noticing the close, firm texture of the mold. Doe, said the second mate, it's just like the blessed doe, poof. He stood up with a quick movement. I could fancy it stinks a bit, he said. As he said this, I knew suddenly what the familiar thing was in the vague odor that hung about us. It was that the smell had something animal-like in it, something of the same smell, only heavier, that you would smell in any place that is infested with mice. 
I began to look about with a sudden, very real uneasiness. There might be vast numbers of hungry rats aboard. They might prove exceedingly dangerous, if in a starving condition, yet, as you will understand, somehow I hesitated to put forward my idea as a reason for caution. It was too fanciful. Captain Gannigan had begun to go aft along the mold-covered main deck with the second mate, each of them holding their lamps high up, so as to cast a good light about the vessel. I turned quickly and followed them, the man with me keeping close to my heels and plainly uneasy. As we went, I became aware that there was a feeling of moisture in the air, and I remembered the slight mist or smoke above the hulk, which had made Captain Gannington suggest spontaneous combustion in explanation. And always as we went, there was that vague animal smell. Suddenly I found myself wishing we were well away from the old vessel. Abruptly, after a few paces, the captain stopped and pointed to a row of mold-hidden shapes on each side of the main deck. Guns, he said. Been a privateer in the old days, I guess. Maybe worse. We'll have a look below, doctor. There may be something worth touching. She's older than I thought. Mr. Selvern thinks she's about two hundred years old, but I scarce think it. We continued our way aft, and I remember that I found myself walking as lightly and gingerly as possible, as if I were subconsciously afraid of treading through the rotten mold-hid decks. I think the others had a touch of the same feeling from the way they walked. Occasionally the soft stuff would grip our heels, releasing them with a little sullen suck. The captain forged somewhat ahead of the second mate, and I knew that the suggestion he had made himself, that perhaps there might be something below worth carrying away, had stimulated his imagination. The second mate was, however, beginning to feel somewhat the same way that I did. At least I have that impression. I think if it had not been for what I might truly describe as Captain Gannington's sturdy courage, we should all of us have just gone back over the side very soon, for there was most certainly an unwholesome feeling aboard that made one feel queerly lacking in pluck. And you will soon see this feeling was justified. Just as the captain reached the few mold-covered steps leading up to the short half-poop, I was suddenly aware that the feeling of moisture in the air had grown very much more definite. It was perceptible now, intermittently as a sort of thin, moist, fog-like vapor that came and went oddly, and seemed to make the decks a little indistinct to the view this time and that. Once an odd puff of it beat up suddenly from somewhere, caught me in the face, carrying a queer, sickly, heavy odor with it that somehow frightened me strangely with a suggestion of a waiting and half-comprehended danger. We had followed Captain Gannington up the three mold-covered steps, and now went slowly along the raised after-deck. By the mizzenmast, Captain Gannington paused and held his lantern near to it. "'My word, mister,' he said to the second mate. "'It's fair thickened up with mold.' 
I, I'll guarantee it's close on four foot thick. He shone the light down to where it met the deck. Good Lord, he said. Look at the sea lice on it. I stepped up, and it was as he had said. The sea lice were thick upon it, some of them huge, not less than the size of large beetles, and all a clear, colorless shade like water, except where there were little spots of gray on them. I've never seen the like of them, except on a live cod, said Captain Gannington in an extremely puzzled voice. My word, but they're whoppers. Then he passed on, but a few paces further aft he stopped again and held his lamp near to the mold-hidden deck. "'Lord bless me, doctor,' he called out in a low voice. "'Did ye ever see the like of that? Why, it's a foot long if it's an inch.' I stooped over his shoulder and saw what he meant. It was a clear, colorless creature, about a foot long, and eight inches high with a curved back that was extremely narrow.' As we stared all in a group, it gave a queer little flick and was gone. Jumped, said the captain. Well, if it ain't a giant of all the sea lice that ever I've seen, I guess it's jumped twenty foot clear. He straightened his back and scratched his head a moment, swinging the lantern this way and that with the other hand and staring about us. What are they doing aboard here? he said. You'll see em, little things, on fat cod and such like. I'm blowed, doctor, if I understand. He held his lamp toward the big mound of the mold that occupied part of the after portion of the low poop deck, little foresight of where there came a two-foot break to a kind of second and loftier poop that ran away aft to the taffrail. The mound was pretty big, several feet across, and more than a yard high. Captain Gannington walked up to it. I reckon this the scuttle, he remarked, and gave it a heavy kick. The only result was a deep indentation to the huge whitish lump of mold, as if he had driven his foot into a mass of some doughy substance. Yet I am not altogether correct in saying that this was the only result, for a certain other thing happened. From the place made by the captain's foot there came a sudden gush of purplish fluid, accompanied by a peculiar smell. That was, and was not, half familiar. Some of the mold-like substance had stuck to the toe of the captain's boot, and from this likewise there issued a sweat, as it were, of the same color. Well, said Captain Gannington in surprise, and drew back his foot to make another kick at the lump of mold. But he paused at an exclamation from the second mate. Don't, sir, said the second mate. I glanced at him, and the light from Captain Gannington's lamp showed me that his face had a bewildered, half-frightened look, as if he were suddenly and unexpectedly half afraid of something, and as if his tongue had given away his sudden fright, without any intention on his part to speak. The captain turned and stared at him. "'Why, mister?' he asked, in a somewhat puzzled voice, through which there sounded just the vaguest hint of annoyance. "'We've got to shift this muck if we're to get below.' 
I looked at the second mate, and it seemed to me that, curiously enough, he was listening less to the captain than to some other sound. Suddenly he said in a queer voice, Listen, everybody! Yet we heard nothing beyond the faint murmur of the men talking together in the boat alongside. I don't hear nothing, said Captain Gannington, after a short pause. Do you, doctor? No, I said. What was it you thought you heard? The captain turning again to the second mate, but the second mate shook his head in a curious, almost irritable way, as if the captain's question interrupted his listening. Captain Gannington stared a moment at him, then held his lantern up and glanced about him almost uneasily. Now I felt a queer sense of strain, but the light showed nothing beyond the grayish, dirty white of the mold in all directions. Mr. Selvin, said the captain at last, looking at him, don't get fancying things. Get hold of your bloomin' self. Ye know oh, ye heard nothing. I'm quite sure I heard something, sir, said the second mate. I seem to hear, he broke off sharply and appeared to listen with an almost painful intensity. What did it sound like? I asked. It's all right, doctor, said Captain Gannington, laughing gently. He can give him a tonic when we get back. I'm going to ship this stuff. He drew back and kicked for the second time at the ugly mass which he took to hide the companionway. The result of his kick was startling. The whole thing wobbled sloppily, like a mound of unhealthy-looking jelly. He drew his foot out of it quickly and took a step backward, staring, and holding his lamp towards it. By gum, he said, and it was plain that he was generally startled. The blessed thing's gone soft. The man had run back several steps from the suddenly flaccid mound and looking horribly frightened, though of what I am sure he had not the least idea. The second mate stood where he was and stared. For my part, I knew I had a most hideous uneasiness upon me. The captain continued to hold his light toward the wobbling mound and stare. It's gone splashy all through, he said. There's no scuttle there. There's no bally woodwork inside the lot. <sighs> what a rum smell. He walked round to the after side of the strange mound to see whether there might be some signs of an opening into the hull at the back of the great heap of mound stuff. And then, Listen, said the second mate again in the strangest sort of voice. Captain Gannington straightened himself upright, and there succeeded a pause of the most intense quietness, in which there was not even the hum of talk from the men alongside the boat. We all heard it. A kind of dull, soft thud. Thud, thud. Somewhere in the hull under us, yet so vague as to make me half doubtful I heard it. Only that the others did so, too. Captain Gannigan turned suddenly to where the man stood. Tell him, he began, but the fellow cried out something and pointed. There had come a strange intensity into his somewhat unemotional face, so that the captain's glance followed his action instantly. I stared also, as you may think. It was the great mound at which the man was pointing. I saw what he meant. From the two gaps made in the mold-like stuff by Captain Gannigan's boot, 
The purple fluid was jetting out in a queerly regular fashion, almost as if it were being forced out by a pump. My word! But I stared, and even as I stared, a larger jet squirted out and splashed as far as the man, splattering his boots and trouser legs. The fellow had been pretty nervous before, in a stored, ignorant sort of way, and his funk had been growing steadily. But at this he simply let out a yell and turned to run. He paused an instant as if a sudden fear of the darkness that held the decks between him and the boat had taken him. He snatched at the second mate's lantern, tore it out of his hand, and plunged heavily away over the vile stench of mold. Mr. Selvern, second mate said, not a word. He was just staring staring at the strange-smelling twin streams of dull purple that were jetting out from the wobbling mound. Captain Gannigan, however, roared an order to the man to come back, but the man plunged on and across the mold, his feet seeming to be clogged by the stuff, as if it had grown suddenly soft. He zigzagged as he ran, the lantern swaying in wild circles as he wrenched his feet free from a constant plop, plop and I could hear his frightened gasps even from where I stood. "'Come back with that lamp!' roared the captain again, but still the man took no notice. And Captain Gannington was silent an instant, his lips working in a queer, inarticulate fashion, as if he were stunned momentarily by the very violence of his anger at the man's insubordination. And in the silence I heard the sounds again. Thud! Thud, 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 quite distinctly now, beating, it seemed suddenly to me, right down under my feet, but deep. I stared down at the mold on which I was standing, with a quick, disgusting sense of the terrible all about me. Then I looked at the captain and tried to say something without appearing frightened. I saw that he had turned again to the mold and all the anger had gone out of his face. He had his lamp out towards the mold and was listening. There was another moment of absolute silence. At least I know that I was not conscious of any sound at all in all the world, except that extraordinary thud, 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 down somewhere in the huge bulk under us. The captain shifted his feet with a sudden nervous movement, and as he lifted them the mold went plop, plop. He looked quickly at me, trying to smile, as if he were not thinking anything very much about it. What do you make of it, doctor? he said. I think, I began, but the second mate interrupted me with a single word. His voice pitched a little high in a tone that made us both stare instantly at him. Look! he said, and pointed at the mound. The thing was all of a slow quiver. A strange ripple ran outward from it, along the deck, like you will see a ripple run in shore out to a calm sea. It reached a mound a little foreside of us, which I had supposed to be the captain's skylight, and in a moment the second mound sank nearly level with the surrounding decks, quivering floppily in the most extraordinary fashion. A sudden, quick, 
Tremor took the mold right under the second mate, and he gave out a hoarse little cry and held his arms out on each side of him to keep his balance. The tremor in the mold spread, and Captain Gannington swayed and spread out his feet with a sudden curse of fright. Second mate jumped across to him and caught him by the wrist. The boat, sir, he said, saying the very thing that I had lacked the pluck to say. For God's sake! But he never finished, for a tremendous hoarse scream cut off his words. They hove themselves around and looked. I could see without turning. The man who had run from us was standing in the waist of the ship, about a fathom from the starboard bulwarks. He was swaying from side to side and screaming in a dreadful fashion. He appeared to be trying to lift his feet, and the light from his swaying lantern showed an almost incredible sight. All about him the mold was in active movement. His feet had sunk out of sight. The stuff appeared to be lapping at his legs, and abruptly his bare flesh showed. The hideous stuff had rent his trouser leg away as if it were paper. He gave out a simply sickening scream, and with a vast effort, wrenched one leg free. It was partly destroyed. The next instant he pitched face downward, and the stuff heaped itself upon him, as if it were actually alive, with a dreadful, severe life. It was simply infernal. The man had gone from sight. Where he had fallen was now a writhing, elongated mound in constant and horrible increase, as the mold appeared to move across it in strange ripples from all sides. Captain Gannington and the second mate were stone silent, in amazed and incredulous horror. But I had begun to reach towards the grotesque and terrific conclusion, both helped and hindered by my professional training. From the men in the boat alongside there was a loud shouting, and I saw two of their faces appear suddenly above the rail. They showed clearly a moment in the light from the lamp which the man had snatched from Mr. Selvern, for, strangely enough, this lamp was standing upright and unharmed on the deck. A little way foresight of that dreadful, elongated, growing mold that still swayed and writhed with an incredible horror. The lamp rose and fell on the passing ripples of the mold, just for all the world, as you will see a boat rise and fall on little swells. It is of some interest to me now, psychologically, to remember how that rising and falling lantern brought home to me, more than anything, the incomprehensible dreadful strangeness of it all. The men's faces disappeared with sudden yells, as if they had slipped or been suddenly hurt, and there was a fresh uproar of shouting from the boat. The men were calling for us to come away, to come away. In the same instant I felt my left boot drawn suddenly and forcefully downward with a horrible painful grip. I wrenched it free with a yell of angry fear. Forward of us I saw the vile surface was all a move, and abruptly I found myself shouting in a queer, frightened voice, The boat, Captain! The boat, Captain! 
Captain Gannington stared round me, over his right shoulder, in a peculiar dull way that told me he was utterly dazed with bewilderment and the incomprehensibleness of it all. I took a quick, clogged, nervous step toward him and gripped his arm and shook it fiercely. The boat! I shouted at him. The boat! For God's sake, tell the men to bring the boat aft! Then the mound must have drawn his feet down, for abruptly he bellowed fiercely with terror, his momentary apathy giving place to furious energy. His thick-set, very muscular body doubled and writhed with his enormous effort. And he struck out madly, dropping the lantern. He tore his feet free, something ripping as he did so. The reality and necessity of the situation had come upon him brutishly real and he was roaring to the men in the boat, "'Bring the boat aft! Bring her aft! Bring her aft!' The second mate and I were shouting the same thing madly. "'For God's sake, be smart, lads!' roared the captain. He stooped quickly for his lamp, which still burned. His feet were gripped again, and he hove them out, blaspheming breathlessly and leaping a yard high with his effort. Then he made a run for the side, wrenching his feet free at each step. In the same instant, the second mate cried out something and grabbed the captain. "'She's got hold of my feet! She's got hold of my feet!' he screamed. His feet had disappeared up to his boot-tops, and Captain Gannigan caught him round the waist with his powerful left arm, gave a mighty heave, and the next instant had him free. But both his boot-soles had gone. For my part, I jumped madly from foot to foot to avoid the plucking of the mold and suddenly I made a run for the ship's side. But before I could get there, a queer gape came in the mold between us and the side, at least a couple of feet wide. And how deep, I don't know. It closed up in an instant, and all the mold where the cape had been fent into a sort of flurry of horrible ripplings, so that I ran back from it, for I did not dare put my foot upon it. Then the captain was shouting to me, Aft, doctor! Aft, doctor! This way, doctor, run! I saw then that he had passed me, and was up on the after-raised portion of the poop. He had the second mate thrown like a sack, all loose and quiet, over his left shoulder. For Mr. Selvern had fainted, and his long legs flogged limp and helpless against the captain's massive knees as he ran. I saw with a queer unconsciousness, noting of minor details, how the torn soles of the second mate's boots flapped and jiggled as the captain staggered aft. Boat ahoy! Boat ahoy! Boat ahoy! shouted the captain, and then I was beside him, shouting also. The men were answering with loud yells of encouragement, and it was plain they were working desperately to force the boat aft through the thick scum about the ship. We reached the ancient mold-hid taffrail and slewed about breathlessly in the half-darkness to see what was happening. Captain Gannington had left his lantern by the big mold when he picked up the second mate, and as we stood gasping we discovered suddenly that all the mold between us and the light was fully in movement. Yet the part of which we stood, for about six or eight feet end of us, was still firm. Every couple of seconds we shouted to the men to hasten, and they kept on calling to us that they would be with us in an instant. 
But all the time we watched the deck of that dreadful hulk, feeling for my part literally sick with mad suspense, and ready to jump overboard into that filthy scum all about us. Down somewhere in the huge bulk of the ship, there was all the time that extraordinary dull, ponderous thud, 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 growing ever louder. I seemed to feel the whole of the derelict beginning to quiver and thrill with each dull beat, and to me with the grotesque and hideous suspicion of what made that noise. It was at once the most dreadful and incredible sound I have ever heard. As we waited desperately for the boat, I scanned incessantly so much of the gray-white bulk as the lamp showed, and the whole of the decks seemed to be in strange movement. Forward of the lamp I could see indistinctly the moldings of the mold, swaying and nodding hideously beyond the circle of brightest rays. Nearer and full in the glow of the lamp, the mound which should have indicated the skylight was swelling steadily. There were ugly, purple veinings on it, and as it swelled, it seemed to me that the veinings and mottlings on it were becoming plainer, rising as though embossed upon it, like you will see the veins stand out on the body of a powerful, full-blooded horse. It was most extraordinary. The mound that we had supposed to cover the companionway had sunk flat with the surrounding mold, and I could not see that it jutted out any more of the purplish fluid. A quaking movement of the mound began away forward of the lamp, and came flurrying away aft toward us, and at the sight of that I climbed up on the spongy-feeling taffrail, and yelled afresh for the boat. The men answered with a shout, which told me they were nearer. But the beastly scum was so thick that it was evidently a fright to move the boat at all. Beside me, Captain Gannington was shaking the second mate furiously, and the man stirred and began to moan. The captain shook him again. Wake up! Wake up, mister! he shouted. The second mate staggered out of the captain's arms and collapsed suddenly shrieking, Oh, my feet! Oh, God, my feet! The captain and I lugged him off the mound and got him into a sitting position upon the taffrail, where he kept up a continual moaning. Hold him, doctor, said the captain, and whilst I did so, he ran forward a few yards and peered down over the starboard quarter rail. For God's sake, be smart, lads! Be smart! Be smart! He shouted down to the men, and they answered him, breathless, from close at hand, yet still too far away for the boat to be of any use to us on the instant. I was holding the moaning half-unconscious officer, and staring forward along the poop-decks. The flurrying of the mold was coming aft, slowly, noiselessly, and then suddenly I saw something closer. "'Look, Captain,' I shouted. And even as I shouted, the mold near to him gave a sudden peculiar slobber. I had seen a ripple stealing towards him through the mold. He gave an enormous, clumsy leap and landed near to us on the center part of the mold, 
but the movement followed him. He turned and faced it, swearing fiercely. All about his feet there came abruptly little gapings, which made horrid sucking noises. Come back, Captain, I yelled. Come back quick. As I shouted, a ripple came at his feet, leaping at them, and he stamped inanely at it, and leaped back, his boot torn half off his foot. He swore madly with pain and anger and jumped swiftly for the taffrail. Come on, doctor, over we go, he called. Then he remembered the filthy scum and hesitated and roared out desperately to the men to hurry. I stared down also. The second mate, I said. I'll take charge, doctor, said Captain Gannington, and caught hold of Mr. Selvern. As he spoke, I thought I saw something beneath us, outlined against the scum. I leaned out over the stern and peered. There was something under the port quarter. There's something down there, Captain, I called and pointed in the darkness. He stooped far over and stared. A boat, by gum, a boat, he yelled and began to wiggle swiftly along the taffrail, dragging the second mate after him. I followed. A boat it is, sure, he exclaimed a few moments later, and picking up the second mate clear of the rail, he hove him down into the boat, where he fell with a crash into the bottom. Over you go, doctor, he yelled at me, and pulled me bodily off the rail and dropped me after the officer. As he did so, I felt the whole of the ancient spongy rail give a peculiar, sickening quiver, and begin to wobble. I fell on to the second mate, and the captain came after, almost in the same instant, but fortunately he landed clear of us on the fourth thwart, which broke under his weight with a loud crack and splintering of wood. Thank God, I heard him mutter. Thank God. Guess that was a mighty near thing to going to Hades. He struck a match just as I got to my feet, and between us we got the second mate straightened out on one of the after-fore and aft-thwarts. We shouted to the men in the boat, telling them where we were, and saw the light of their lantern shining round the stubborn center of the derelict. They called back to us to tell us they were doing their best, and then, Whilst we waited, Captain Gannington struck another match, began to overhaul the boat we were dropped into. She was a modern, two-beamed boat, and on the stern there was painted Cyclone, Glasgow. She was in pretty fair condition and had evidently drifted into the scum and been held by it. Captain Gannington struck several matches and went forward towards the derelict. Suddenly he called to me, and I jumped over the thwarts to him. Look, doctor, he said, and I saw what he meant. A mass of bones up in the bows of the boat. I stooped over them and looked. There were the bones of at least three people, all mixed together in an extraordinary fashion, and quite clean and dry. I had sudden thought concerning the bones, but I said nothing for my thought was vague in some ways, and concerned their grotesque and incredible suggestion that had come to me as the cause of that dull thud, 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 that beat 
on so infernally within the hull. And was plain to hear, even now, that we had got off the vessel herself. And all the while, you know, I had a sick, horrible mental picture of that frightful, wriggling mound aboard the hulk. As Captain Gannington struck a final match, I saw something that sickened me, and the captain saw it in the same instant. The match went out, and he fumbled clumsily for another, and struck it. We saw the thing again. We had not been mistaken. A great lip of gray-white was protruding over the edge of the boat. A great lappet of the mold was coming stealthily toward us, a live mass of the very hull itself. And suddenly Captain Gannington yelled out in so many words the grotesque and incredible thing I was thinking. She's alive! I never heard such a sound of comprehension and terror in a man's voice. The very horrified assurance of it made actual to me the thing that before had only lurked in my subconscious mind. I knew he was right. I knew that the explanation my reason and my training both repelled and reached toward was the true one. Oh, I wonder whether anyone can possibly understand our feelings in that moment. The unmitigated horror of it, and the incredibleness. As the light of that match burned up fully, I saw that the mass of living matter coming towards us was streaked and veined with purple, the vein standing out enormously distended. The whole thing quivered continually to each ponderous thud, thud, thud thud of that gargantuan organ that pulsed within the huge gray-white bulk. The flame of the match reached the captain's fingers, and there came to me a little sickly whiff of burned flesh, but he seemed unconscious of any pain. Then the flame went out in a brief sizzle, yet at the last moment I had seen an extraordinary raw look become visible upon the end of the monstrous protruding lappet. It had become dewed with a hideous, purplish sweat, and in the darkness there came a sudden charnel-like stench. I heard the matchbox split in Captain Gannington's hands as he wrenched it open. Then he swore in a queer, frightened voice, for he had come to the end of his matches. He turned clumsily in the darkness and tumbled over the nearest thwart, in his eagerness to get to the stern of the boat, and I after him for we knew that thing was coming toward us through the darkness, reaching over the piteous mingled heap of human bones all jumbled together in the bows. We shouted madly to the men, and for answer saw the bows of the boat emerge dimly into view round the starboard corner of the derelict. Thank God! I gasped out, but Captain Gannington roared to them to show a light. Yet this they could not do, for the lamp had just been stepped on in their desperate efforts to force the boat round us. "'Quick, quick!' I shouted. "'For God's sake, be smart, men!' roared the captain. And both of us faced the darkness under the port counter, out of which we knew, but could not see. The thing was coming to us. "'An oar! Smart now! Pass me an oar!' shouted the captain. 
and reached out his hands through the gloom towards the oncoming boat. I saw a figure stand up in the bows and hold something out to us across the intervening yards of scum. Captain Garrington swept his hands through the darkness and encountered it. I've got it. Let go there, he said in a quick, tense voice. In this same instant, the boat we were in was pressed over suddenly to starboard by some tremendous weight. Then I heard the captain shout, Duck in, doctor! And directly afterwards, he swung the heavy fourteen-foot oar round his head and struck into the darkness. There came a sudden squelch, and he struck again with a savage grunt of fierce energy. At the second blow, the boat righted with a slow movement and directly afterwards the other boat bumped gently into ours. Captain Gannington dropped the oar, and, springing across to the second mate, hove him up off the thwart, and pitched him with knee and arms clear in over the bows among the men. Then he shouted to me to follow, which I did, and he came after me, bringing the oar with him. We carried the second mate aft, and the captain shouted to the men to back the boat a little. Then they got her bows clear of the boat we had just left, and so headed out through the scum for the open sea. "'Where's Tom Harrison?' gasped one of the men in the midst of his exertions. He happened to be Tom Harrison's particular chum, and Captain Gannington answered him briefly enough. "'Dead, pull, don't talk!' Now difficult as it had been to force the boat through the scum to our rescue— the difficulty to get clear seemed tenfold. After some five minutes of pulling, the boat seemed hardly to have moved a fathom, if so much. And a quite dreadful fear took me afresh, which one of the panting men put suddenly into words. "'It's got us!' he gasped out. "'Same but poor Tom!' It was the man who had inquired where Harrison was. "'Got your mouth and pull!' roared the captain. And so another few minutes passed. Abruptly it seemed to me that the dull, ponderous thud, 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 came more plainly through the dark, and I stared intently over the stern. I sickened a little, for I could almost swear that the dark mass of the monster was actually nearer, that it was coming nearer to us through the darkness. Captain Gannington must have had the same thought, for after a brief look into the darkness he jumped forward, and began to double-bank the stroke oar. "'Get forward under the oars, doctor,' he said to me rather breathlessly. "'Get in the bows and see if you can't free the stuff a bit round the bows.' I did as he told me, and a minute later I was in the bows of the boat puddling the scum from side to side and trying to break up the viscid, clinging muck. A heavy, almost animal-like smell rose off it, and all the air seemed full of the deadening, heavy smell. I shall never find words to tell anyone on earth the whole horror of it, the threat that seemed to hang in the very air around us. And but a little astern that incredible thing, coming, as I firmly believed, nearer, and scum holding us like half-melted glue. 
The minutes passed in a deadly, eternal fashion, and I kept staring back astern into the darkness, but never ceasing to puddle that filthy scum, striking at it and switching it from side to side until I sweated. Abruptly, Captain Gannington sang out, We're gaining, lads, pull! And I felt the boat forge ahead perceptibly, as they gave way with renewed hope and energy. There was soon no doubt of it. Presently that hideous thud, 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 had grown quite dim and vague somewhere astern, and I could no longer see the derelict. For the night had come down tremendously dark, and all the sky was thick, overset with heavy clouds. As we drew nearer and nearer to the edge of the scum, the boat moved more and more perceptibly, until suddenly we emerged with a clean, sweet, fresh sound into the open sea. Thank God, I said aloud, and drew into the boat hook and made my way aft again to where Captain Gannington now sat once more at the tiller. I saw him look anxiously up at the sky across to where the lights of our vessel burned, and again he would listen intently, so that I found myself listening also. "'What's that, Captain?' I said sharply, for it seemed to me that I heard a sound far astern, something between a queer whine and a low whistling. What's that? It's wind, doctor, he said in a low voice. I wish to God we were aboard. Then to the men, Pull, put your backs into it, or you'll never put your teeth through good bread again. The men obeyed nobly, and we reached the vessel safely, and had the boat safely stowed before the storm came, which it did in a furious white smother out of the west. I could see it for some minutes beforehand, tearing the sea and the gloom into a wall of phosphorescent foam. And as it came nearer, that peculiar whining, piping sound grew louder and louder, until it was like a vast steam whistle rushing towards us. And when it did come, we got it very heavy indeed, so that the morning showed us nothing but a welter of white seas with that grim derelict, many a score of miles away in the smother, lost as utterly as our hearts could wish to lose her. When I came to examine the second mate's feet, I found them in a very extraordinary condition. The soles of them had the appearance of having been partly digested. I know of no other word that so exactly describes their condition and the agony the man suffered must have been dreadful. Now, concluded the doctor, that is what I call a case in point. If we could know exactly what the old vessel had originally been loaded with, and the juxtaposition of the various articles of her cargo, plus the heat and time she had endured, plus one or two other only guessable quantities, we should have solved the chemistry of the life-force, gentlemen. Not necessarily the origin, mind you, but at least we should have taken a big step on the way. I've often regretted that gale, you know. In a way, that is, in a way. It was a most amazing discovery, 
but at the same time I had nothing but thankfulness to be rid of it. A most amazing chance. I often think of the way the monster woke out of his torpor. And that scum, the dead pigs caught in it. I fancy that was a grim kind of a net, gentlemen. It caught many things. It... The old doctor sighed and nodded. If I could have had her bill of lading, he said, his eyes full of regret. If... It might have told me something to help. But anyway... He began to fill his pipe again. I suppose, he ended, looking round at us gravely, I suppose we humans are an ungrateful lot of beggars at the best. But, but what a chance. What a chance, eh? This has been The Derelict by William Hope Hodgson. I'm Mike Vendetti. Production copyright 2013 by audiobooks by Mike Vendetti. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm uh, Mike Vendetti, narrator. Hi, I'm Sam Gafford. I run the William Hope Hudson blog. Yeah, and we are talking today about The Derelict by William Hope Hodgson. This is, um, I think, maybe the third story I read hmm. by... Maybe not. Maybe it's the first. It's really hard to say, but it's so, it's it, to me it's one of the most iconic kind of William Hope Hodgson stories. It's got the supernatural element, and it's got the nautical element, and it's a really good writing. So it's definitely one of his most popular stories. It's been in many anthologies over the years. This is uh, the second story for you, uh, Mike. Uh, I'm looking here, I, you know, because I've done so many of these things, and I just, uh, I, I, I got on a William Hope Hodson uh, kick for a while, and uh, I think I've done, you know, two or three or four stories for him. They've been uh, hmm. some have been published on the uh, on Audible dot com. I'm looking here to see what I had, but uh, out of the storm you you just did yesterday, or maybe the day before that. That we were talking about before the podcast started. Mm -hmm. And it's one of my favorite stories. We've done a podcast on that one already, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the only novel of his that I've read is um, is The House on the Borderland, oh. which I think is a fantastic. Well, I, I, I think I was telling you, Sam, yesterday that I think it's one of the best novels of the 20th century. Well, of course, I'm not going to disagree with that. <laughs> uh, it is probably his most well-known novel, and I think it's definitely a classic of both science fiction and horror. Yeah. And since, you know, he wrote four novels in his very early writing career, uh, House on the Borderland is the one he's most known for. Uh, the Ghost Pirates happens to be a personal favorite of mine. Mm -hmm. The Boats of the Glen Carrig is very similar in part some to some of his short stories, like the one that we're talking about today. Then, of oh, course, cool. there's The Nightland, which is this huge omnibus, which is just an amazing story to read, and it is written in an incredibly difficult style to get used to. Mm. You know, so 
as a novelist, I would say he's probably one of the best horror novelists that there ever have been. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. he only wrote four. So, uh, he, uh, am I remembering this right? He was killed in World War One. Yes, he died in 1918 over in Belgium. And it was, I believe, near the end of the war. The circumstances was that he was with his unit and they set up a forward observation post and he volunteered to man the post with another officer of his and they heard from him one day and then the next day there was no information forthcoming so Hudson's own officer under continuous fire went to the post to find out what happened and a French shoulder gave him Hudson's helmet and told him that Hudson and his fellow officer had suffered a direct hit from a nice. German artillery shell, and there was very little of him left even to bury. That was a that was a terrible battle. I did a another audiobook that was uh, actually uh, written by a participant in that uh, that battle in how you pronounce Europe? I camp in Belgium. Eeps. And uh, it it just you know like I, I I did the Vietnam thing and it was like the good thing about Vietnam you were if you were wounded you were out fairly quickly but those guys it, tough, yeah. in uh, World War One uh, just you, you just it was just really really horrible uh, he could have probably if he would have survived become another Ambrose Bierce <laughs> well he, Ambrose Bierce had a famous end as well, famous disappearance. But Well, uh, the interesting thing is the fact that Hudson did have several opportunities to leave the war. He was wounded before he even shipped out, and he was sent back home to Borth and worked so hard on his recovery so that he could go back and join his unit before they went over to France. Then he got wounded while he was in France and could have gone home at that point, but he still refused to leave his unit. I'm curious as to why he he was in the in the army because I mean he was a sailor. Yeah. The only the only thing that makes me you know have a guess that is is that uh, apparently he he had a sort of a love hate relationship with with his. Uh, that's his a not adventures. Yeah, that's kind of a nice way to put it. <laughs> he started out, of course, being very much in love with the sea. He ran off to the sea when he was 13 years old and was apprenticed into the merchant marine. But by the time he left the sea, which would be about 1900, he had grown to hate the sea so much that he refused to have anything to do with it, and he would not accept a commission in the Royal Navy, and he insisted upon being in the Royal Artillery Force. Hmm. He, he well, just wanted nothing yeah, to do with it. In there. Yeah, if he had gone in the Navy, he probably would have survived. Yeah, and uh, with his experience, he probably would have been, uh, you know, upped in the ranks pretty quickly. Well, of course, the interesting question to wonder about is why he didn't join the Royal Navy when he ran away to to the Navy, to the sea, because he probably would have risen fairly well through the ranks. And as it was in the Merchant Navy, he only got up, I believe, to his second mate certificate, and he didn't progress beyond that. And one of the primary reasons he didn't go beyond that was because 
not only were the conditions horrible, but you didn't really make enough money. You were kind of like a slave for the ship owners. I was reading um, a book recently. Uh, I read a book called uh, "Around uh, Sailing Around the World," mm-hmm. uh, "Sailing Alone Around the World" by Joshua Slocum. It's a, a late eight. I think it came out eighteen ninety nine, hmm. and it it was uh, about a. It's a nonfiction book about a guy who sails around the world, and apparently the reason he. I mean, it's in the it's in the book itself. It's saying you know he he was sort of kicked out of the job of being a sailor because there's just no more sailboats. Everything's steam powered and his skills are for, you know, sail. Right. And, and so it, it might be in that, that time, I mean, in that time period, people are just getting out of that business. Yeah. There was a transition, you know, in like the, the, the short story that I just did out of the storm, I mean, his, it's almost like his hatred of the sea. He's looking at the sea as a evil, evil place mm-hmm. that does uh, evil things to men and women. You know that are, that are out on it's the personified sea. Personified yeah. as a as a monster, right? Yeah, it really is, and it's uh, you know he blames the sea for what happens to these people that are on that ship that is going down, and. Uh, it just I love I love the 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 note of the uh, the unnamed guy on that boat he's he starts off as like it's horrible and then he says no it's god right and it's it's my god now and and then he switches back no no I was wrong yeah well like you, you know I take first he's kind of like prays to the sea to uh stop this and then of course in the end he uh tries to make a deal mhm it's a it's a fun story because of of the 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 images we get of the other people on the ship I think are are what really make it you know there's there's that lady uh who's with her boyfriend yeah and uh, the the wave comes and at one scene they're they're you know holding on to each other and the next scene she's biting him but <laughs> yeah I think she I think what she did her. she went it says he went to uh her hairpiece and she may have pulled a hairpin out of her right. hair, and uh, the way it sounded like she just stabbed this guy with a uh, a hairpin, which in that era, a hairpin could be a very deadly it's weapon. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, in that particular story, and I believe that this is probably some of the feeling that many people who sailed on the sea had at that time, is that the sea becomes their god, and it's also a very ambivalent force in the fact that it really doesn't care about you, and mm-hmm. it doesn't care if you're happy, and it doesn't care if you survive. It is what it is, and it does what it does. So in that way, it's very similar to sort of Lovecraft's deterministic universe and the fact that you don't really matter. Mm-hmm. You know, you're on yeah, the sea, and think, that's it. I think... That that is probably the biggest connection. Like between between the two is is the not you know I, I was reading on the Wikipedia entry about this story. It says there's a pseudopod. Um, I, I don't think there's any word in this story that says pseudopod. It says no. lappet, which is like a a flap sort of thing. Right. It's kind of more like ooze, really. Yeah. It's it's alive and it's coming, but it. 
it, it, I mean, the pseudopod makes it makes us think of like uh, an octopus or right something, right? So it's the the connection is not so much about uh, the visual. You know, it, it's not he's not doing love or Lovecraft's not cop. They're not copying each other. What it is is they both have sort of the same basic take on how the universe works. Right. At least in in the stories, in that. A lot of it's in your head, and a lot of it's in the world, and it's not how normal people see it. That's true. And the interesting thing is that Lovecraft really did not read a whole lot of Hodson. He read the four novels and the Karnacki mm-hmm. stories, and that is it as far as we know. I've got a, I've got a paragraph here from uh, Supernatural Horror and Literature oh, yes. about Hodgson. Um, he does talk about the Nightland, the Ghost Pirates, the House on the Borderland, and and the boats of Glen Clare, as well as the Karnacki stories. But it, he doesn't mention this one, obviously. But right. this is a nice uh, paragraph. I'll read this. It says, Of rather uneven stylistic quality, but vast occasional power in its suggestion of lurking worlds and beings beyond, behind the ordinary surface of life is the work of William Hope Hodgson, known today far less than it deserves to, than it deserves to be. Despite a tendency towards conventionality, uh, conventionally s- sentimental conceptions of the universe and of man's relations to it and its fellows, Mr. Hodgson is perhaps second only to Algernon Blackwood in his serious treatment of unreality. Few can equal him in adumbrating, whatever that means, <laughs> the nearness of nameless forces and monstrous besieging entities through casual hints and insignificant details, or in conveying feelings of the spectral and the abnormal in connection with regions or buildings. He's got like the, he's got, he always has long sentences so he can both (laughs) slap you and praise you at the same time. And you're being very generous there by not quoting what he says about Karnacki. Lovecraft was not a Karnacki fan. fan I'm not a big fan of Karnacki either, but I'm not a big fan of uh, ghost stories generally. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think that's part. I mean, th- th- I think they follow the same formula uh, that Hodgson really always does, which is a frame story, which I, I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It has that very specific structure for a Karnacki story. And for me personally, I think that's part of the charm is the fact that it always has that similar structure. It starts mm-hmm. at a certain point and then it comes back to that same point at the end. In uh, in Out of the Storm, the frame is completely abandoned at the end, which I like. Right, <laughs> but it, it doesn't need to come back because we've got the we've got into it. Right, if, but I think if he had brought that communication factor back at the end of that story, it would have completely ruined the mood. It would have broken it. Yeah, you would you would have said, "Oh, right, okay, I'm reading a story." Right. <laughs> Whereas in uh, this one, um, it, it, it ends in a similar way, but because the introduction is so much longer, mm-hmm. um, I think it's still with us, and we can imagine that we are being told this story by the by the. It's it's a little less indirect, right? And it becomes like we're sitting on that ship with the. Um, and if you listen to Mike's narration, I th- I picture Mike as like as the the doc the old doctor who's telling this story to a bunch of you know younger 
sailors who are yeah i don't i don't believe this shit but mm-hmm. i'll listen yeah and, and I, I was the old guy in that uh narration I'll, yeah i think you did a really good job of bringing out that that you know um you know you know you, you have this back and forth at the beginning it's quite long i mean yeah. it's 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 like i don't know five minutes or something of them just talking about this concept of uh spontaneous generation of life right and the life force Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. In fact, rereading it the other day, I noticed in some ways it's very similar to Arthur Mackin's The White People. Mm. In that both stories begin with a couple of people sitting around talking about the nature of certain things. With Mackin, it's kind of like the nation, um, the notion of evil and sin. And here with Hudson, he's talking about an indescribable life force that can just simply enter things if the combination is correct. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of matter and uh, condition and perhaps another thing, right? Temperature. Yeah. You know, certainly. So it's, that's why the, at the end, the narrator is so like, oh, gee, you know, if only we knew what was in there, we could recreate it. Mm. Uh, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit of Frankenstein in there. You know, uh, I w- I wanted to uh, tell uh, something that came up while I was thinking about uh, that part of the story is uh, early a long time ago I read the Echologues by Virgil. He's a, he's the guy who wrote the Aeneid, but he also wrote some earlier poems, and one of them is about very strangely they're mostly about farming, but. The Romans, I guess, if we are to go by Virgil, thought that um, something like what Hodgson is saying is that uh, sort of living animated matter can come from dead matter. Um, So in one of the eclogues, there's sort of a recipe for how to make um, (laughs) wasps. What you do is you you get a corpse of a of a animal and you cover it. And wasps will spontaneously generate out of it, having, you know, not been planted in there. Now, we know <laughs> that that's not how wasps are made, right? They just mm. haven't sealed it properly or, or you know, they haven't realized there's uh, wasps' eggs or something that got into the cover. But that's what they were thinking. Sure. Um, that, that, that these things, these that living uh, moving animal matter can be made from dead material, sort of just naturally. And I, th- I thought that was really, uh, I mean, we can say, oh, yeah, that makes no sense. But right. uh, on the other hand, it did happen on Earth at one time, right? Yeah, and I do believe that previous civilizations did have very similar concepts in terms of mm-hmm. if they would watch certain dead matter long enough, you know, things would happen. Flies would form, you know, maggots would come up, and they had really had no understanding of what actually caused that. You know, so to them, it's like, well, the life force is being moved into different directions. Mm-hmm. Now that that also reminds me of the other story, which I w- I did want to talk a little bit about, which is um, the voice in the night, uh, and I think that that is maybe the scariest story uh, ever because it takes what happens in this story and makes it internal. Mm-hmm. It is definitely Hodson's most famous story. It is the one that is most frequently reprinted. And if he is known for anything, he is probably known for that story. It's, 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 it has a, like a, a different way of doing the framing device. Instead of having the, the narrator say something that happened to him, right. 
the, the narrators is actually another guy in a boat who we never really see, who's talking to a guy on a ship in the middle of the night and, you know, says, uh, got any food? Right. But uh, don't don't come any closer. Oh, so scary. It, and it has this idea of of sort of the mold, um, the the mold taking over. Yeah, it definitely has. It's a story that works on a lot of different levels. It's very, a very great story, and it's actually been adapted a couple of times. The Ooh, I think there's a horrible movie uh, version, isn't there? Oh, actually, I enjoy that. That's a met- oh, it's Metango. I, I, That's a lot okay. of fun. It, what's it called? Metango. Yeah, but isn't there a subtitle like uh, yeah, the fungus people yeah, or something? Yeah, the mushroom people. Right. Okay. Uh, it was done by. I haven't uh, seen it. I just. I don't want to see it. The mushroom now. people are fun guys, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, terrible. Uh, but it was done by Toho, um, the Japanese studio, uh, I believe probably around 1960 or so. And it's actually a very good film. You really should watch it if you get a chance. There are some parts of it that are kind of silly. And, of course, it takes some very strong deviations from the original script. But overall, it was a very good adaptation. Oh, really? And okay. it has a nice little twist on the end, which, you know, Hunter didn't put into the story, but it works very well in the context of this. Hmm. And uh, it was also, I'm trying to see if I can remember the details on this, it was adapted for, I believe it was Suspense TV show, which was in the 50s. Oh, you know, show. I'm, I'm yeah. looking at the Wikipedia here, and it says it was on, uh, you know, some really good ones, like Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, oh, really? Did uh, it's, uh, it's mentioned here, and really? uh, Twilight yeah. Zone, Time and Space. Uh, it, uh, it it just it, it is uh, really interesting how some of these things are picked up and again and again. It's just you know, good work is always good work. Yep. Mm-hmm. In fact, I believe you can probably see the suspense episode. I think it's on YouTube. That is cool. And it stars actually Patrick McNee and James Colburn as the wow. two sailors at the beginning of the show. Uh, the quality of the one that's on YouTube is not very good, unfortunately, but you can definitely see that it's them. And is it called Voice in the Night? I believe it is, yes. And it sticks very close to the original story. As you should. It's such a good story. Yep. And... Again, it's probably the one that he's the most known for. I'm surprised that there haven't been... Well, I'm actually surprised there hasn't been more Hudson adaptations overall, but particularly of this one. Um, uh, the one I was thinking I wanted to get Mike to do, uh, but I don't know if anybody can even find a copy of the text, is uh, it's his first... Sto- oh, no, not his first story. One of his early stories. I think it's called... Uh, maybe it's his first story. It's, the, it's something about something in a water tank. Monster oh, in a water tank. Um, hmm. You know that one? Yeah. Let me just check here. It sounds like a. It's like it'd be a good follow up. That's the terror of the water tank. The terror of the water tank. What's the premise behind that? Um, you know, it's like been a while mon- since I've read that one, but it's something to do with. I believe there's been some deaths around, and uh, there's a water tank that apparently has something in it that's monstrous. <laughs> uh, it's one of his lesser stories, and hasn't really appeared all that much 
it was reprinted in Out of the Storm, which was edited by Sam Moskowitz and published by Donald Grant back in the 70s. And I believe it was also <clears throat> reprinted in one of the Nightshade books. Nightshade, okay. Uh, actually, I, I was at the bookstore the other day, and I did see they had one Hodgson book, and it did include... Uh, uh, I think one of the uh, maybe it was the House on the Borderlands and a couple of uh, sh- short stories. Really, is this a new book? Uh, I, I could have been both of Glenn Carrig. It was a short novel. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, uh, it was relatively new. I think it was Nightshade. Interesting. It was a new, it was a new bookstore, so hmm. I was very shocked to see a Hodgson book on on the shelves at all. As I would be. Unfortunately, he is not nearly uh, published as much as I would like these days. And this, the good news is, it's almost all public domain. It, uh, it's yeah. not all right. It so. is everything. I've, well, everything that he published before his death in 1918 is in public domain. There are some things that were found that have been published later, which obviously yeah, I think are we not. had a little chat about the the hog. Oh, the hog is an interesting story. Yeah, that's that's the last Karnacki story, I guess. Well, that is the last Karnacki story in the chronology that's in print. And the interesting thing on that is that there's always been a little bit of a debate about that because it was not published during Hudson's lifetime. Mm-hmm. It did not appear in either of the Karnacki collections, which he did in England and in America. It didn't show up until, I believe, Weird Tales in 1947. And... It was supplied by August Derleth, and there was always some... You, you think he, he might have written it? Well, there's always been a little bit of suspicion. You know, did Was this maybe something that Derleth wrote, or was it something maybe he embellished? Because mm. when you read that story, that is by far probably the most Lovecraftian of any of Hodson's stories. Really? Uh, if you look at the forces from outside pushing in, and a lot of the dialogue of what's happening at the time in the story. It's very Lovecraftian. Hmm. So there's been a lot of debate back and forth. Is it Hudson or isn't it? And unfortunately, we do not have an original manuscript to check. Hmm. The general... Con- what about textual analysis? Just like doing a comparison of of the writings, you know, sentence length and such to Hodgson versus Derleth. Well, no, if we had an original manuscript that Hodson wrote with his name on it, you know, then we could take a look and see, well, was it embellished or is this the way it was? And I myself have never seen any Hodson manuscripts because he wrote everything on the typewriter. He did not write anything by hand. And a fellow Hodson scholar has told me that he has seen the manuscript for the hog and it was written by Hansen on his typewriter and oh. that it is more or less the same as the printed version there's nothing significantly different from it all then so that sounds good yeah so and i trust this source he's a very impeachable source so if we take it from that then it's like well we know a couple of things manuscripts out there somewhere maybe someday it'll come to light and actually be published or at least maybe donated to a library or something so other people can examine it. So we know the manuscripts out there. We know that it's more or less the same as the printed version is. So we can say, yes, 
okay, it is Hodgson. Mm. I still myself, you know, I'm kind of like, all right, I take your word for it. I still kind of would like to see it. You you were also uh, looking into uh, Hodgson's early essays and, and poems, right? Well, we're always looking for anything else that we can find from Hodgson that hasn't been found before. And, you know, the thing that is, of course, the most frustrating for me and for anybody who does work on Hodgson is the fact that there is no repository for his letters or manuscripts or anything like that. Other than your website. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. I'm kind of cobbling things together as best as I can find them. But it's not like Lovecraft. You know, I live here in Rhode Island, and Lovecraft has a massive collection at the John Hay Library at Brown University. So you can go and you can examine his letters and his manuscripts. There's nothing like that for Hodson. We don't have this huge mound of letters or anything, really. So How did you get into uh, William Hope Hodgson then? Well, it was because of supernatural horror and literature. Ah. Uh, when I was about 18 or so, I read that essay for the first time. And I kind of used it as a shopping list. Mm-hmm. Hero, yeah, that's how I use it. All these authors that I'd never heard of before, and it's like, well, all right, if Lovecraft is going to speak so highly of these people, I need to go check them out. And that was also the first time I read Mackin and Blackwood. And uh, although I had known about Dunsany, that was probably the first time I really made an effort to search him out. And this is going back to about 1982 or so. And at the time, it wasn't easy to find these things. No. You know, right now you can go on the internet and you can find pretty much everything of major that you want to that Hodson has written. It's on there. It's free to read. It's public domain. You can read it. You couldn't do that back in 1982. No. You know, so I kind of had to search out the books. And from there, uh, the first book I got was the one I mentioned earlier, Out of the Storm, which was edited by Sam Moskowitz. And that is mm-hmm. a major collection because it brought together a lot of unknown stories at the time. I think Out of the Storm hadn't been published. The actual t- title story hadn't been published since the original publication, right? Well, let me take a look here because one of the things that I'm working on is a bibliography of Hodson. And I'm doing that in conjunction with S.T. Joshi. Oh, cool. And so far, the bibliography is like about 100 pages. So we found a lot of stuff and a lot of different printings of things. So You know, I I, I think that, uh, you know, one reason why there possibly, why there's not a lot of things about Hudson is the way he died. I mean, it was, he was 40 years old when he died. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, as, as a person gets older or a writer gets older, uh, they start to gather things about him. And, you know, with mm-hmm. his sudden death, I mean, it just uh, was... That's very true. Yeah. I, if he had lived longer, he probably would have brought together his letters and his manuscripts and donated them somewhere. It, it probably would have been more publications as well, and which, oh, yeah. which would have, which would have uh, made the publisher say, hey, what you got? Right. And in response to your earlier question, Out of the Storm was originally published in Putnam's Monthly in 1909, and then it was not published again until that Moskowitz collection, which was 73. I also I wanted to point out that the, this story, the one we, we have just 
talk, been talking about the derelict uh, came out the same year as um, as uh, the Titanic. Um, so it, the 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 theme of nautical that I'm really into, and I guess you guys are into as well. Um, we sort of forget that there are ships going on the ocean all the time now because we fly everywhere. But for for the general public, you know, nobody was flying anywhere. If you were going anywhere, it was on a ship. So everyone had a lot more interest in in the sea just as a natural co- consequence of being alive and, and being a person of the world. You know, the, uh, the sea was a lot more of uh, in the public mind than it is today. Definitely. If you went anywhere, you went by sea. Yeah. You know, you have pretty much had to. And everybody would be reading about, you know, ships, you know, disappearing in the same way that we think about airplanes right. uh, crashing, right? Uh, you know, the uh, Captain Sully Sullenberg kind of characters are going to be a lot more in the public mind uh, when they're, on, they're, ship, they're, they're ship captains, right, instead of um, airplane captains. Yeah, and these things would, uh, it's just uh, the ships would, disappear because i mean you've got you uh with the titanic they did have mm-hmm. uh you know the wireless communication and telegraph and so forth but uh that was relatively new when the titanic went down absolutely yeah, that was and, yeah uh, it just, and uh, in fact they're bar- they were barely able to get that communication out right it's only the the fact that there were ships in the area as well allowed you know nobody on the land knew that it was happening yeah that's for sure you know it's a, that's why you'd have the uh the widow's watch because they, the ships would go out and uh, next time you'd hear from them was when they came back and if they didn't come back something happened to them. I was I was mentioning that book uh, sailing alone around the world. Uh, in that book, uh, Slocum actually he he says something interesting as sort of a footnote, and I thought it might have been actually in response to sort of something that Hodgson was sort of going with, which is Hodgson was really uh, he, apparently he wrote a bunch of essays about how terrible the sea life is. Yeah, he wrote a few of those, yeah. Right, and um, I think that they were pretty widely circulated, right? They were, like, uh, people were reading these. It wasn't just, like, you know, an essay somebody writes. It's, it's like it was a popular essay. Well, it was printed. I can't, you know, say how popular it was, but it, you know, his most particular one was Why I Am Not at Sea, Right. And I believe that was written in response to a, somebody else who was proclaiming how wonderful life was to be a sailor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he came out and said, you know, no, it's not. I'll t- let me tell you how bad it is. Yeah. Right? That, and, that's uh, what I was just going to say, too. You know, it's just like he, you know, as a young man, you know, there was a uh, romance of the sea. Yes. And he went out and tried it and said, hey, no, not really. Well, a lot of it. For Hodgson, it sounds like it, a lot of it was just personal abuse. Right? Uh, that was a lot of it. Um, there's a story that when he first went to sea, he had a very abusive second mate, and he got into a row with him where the mate trashed him pretty badly. Mm-hmm. And Hodson himself, when writing about it, says, you know, he was happy to see that the next day when he was called in front of the captain that the second mate had a shiner. Mm. And it was from that point on that he decided to really devote himself to physical culture so that this type of thing wouldn't happen again. 
That's that's. I want to go there too, but let me let me tell you. Uh, uh, anyway, Slocum was saying basically um, of these reports about people who say, you know, I've I've gotten letters from kids, and they they ask me should should I go to see? And he says, absolutely. All those reports you've heard about going to see being bad, they're all untrue. I've never had one bad experience <laughs> with anybody on a ship. Uh, now, if if you read. Uh, Slocum's Wikipedia entry uh, after, you know, his famous voyage and, you know, meeting with the president and many things. He has sort of a, a frightening um, uh, uh, experience with some people in the Caribbean that uh, maybe speak to his character not being so great. <laughs> but, but, you know, maybe he's one of these horrible people who, you know... Yeah, he may have been on the other side of it, yeah. That's it's possible. I don't know. Yeah, uh, because we only get his side of the story in the book. But um, yeah, so this is the funny thing: is Hodgson isn't just like a really good writer. He's also a hunk. If you look oh, at the God, pictures yeah. of him, uh, he's got. He was a photographer too. He's really yeah. into photography. But he'd, he'd take pictures of himself, and he's like he's like uh, Olympian bodybuilder dude. Yeah, he probably would have been the equivalent of a modern day wrestler. You know, when you watch, uh, but almost nobody today. back then was pumped up, right? Well, not really, no, because the act of physical culture was really just kind of getting into its infancy mm -hmm. at the time. Because people didn't really work out; they didn't go to gyms back then. Right. You know, and he made a gym, didn't he? He did. Yep, in Blackburn, he ran it for uh, about two and a half years or so, and it did not do well. It failed, and he ended up having to close it. You know, he was a little bit before his time, I think. Yeah, you know, he, he was. was he was a you know a, a real adventurer. I mean, it, you know, you, you have people in uh, in culture, you know, who uh, want to go to war and so forth. And yeah. uh, he was uh, the type of guy that probably enjoyed it. It uh, from the way he died, he must have been a forward observer, which is a very dangerous uh, position, particularly in World War One. World War One, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, because you're going out there and you're directing artillery fire. And the way you direct artillery fire is uh, either over the wire, and uh, or some sort balloon of signal. You can go up in a balloon as well, but or airplane, but yeah, um, yeah. not if you're in the army. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah, so he, he was. He kind of got in at the beginning of the physical culture thing and wrote several articles for places like Sandow's Magazine, who was another bodybuilder and health enthusiast at the turn of the century. And it was just a thing where it was too early. People mm -hmm. weren't really ready for this type of thing to start hearing somebody talking to them about diet and exercise. And... Probably, if it had been another 10 or 20 years, he probably would have done very well. Uh, what's interesting in my research is about the early things about physical culture is, is that actually is where Superman and all the superheroes came from. Yep. Is, uh, there was, a, I think, the first superhero-style book. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was a novel called Gladiator. Yeah, by Philip uh, Wiley. Right. And that that is sort of a. Uh, I by the way, that's public domain, I believe. Uh, I Mike. think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. A very interesting I, book. I, you know, I'm a lot older than you guys are, and I remember in the comic books you talk about physical culture. 
you know, they always had ads in the yeah. back. Oh, yeah. And uh, they had this one where, you know, this uh, uh, 98-pound weakling, nice. and the, the big guy goes by and kicks sand in his eye, and he buys the, uh, forget whose Field course it was. Yeah, but, probably Charles uh, Atlas. Charles, yeah, he buys the Charles Atlas course, and here he is in the end, you know, just really cleaning up on this guy with the girl on his arm and uh, going from the 98-pound weakling to the... Uh, yeah, and then the uh, girlfriend is happy to go back to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, uh, but I mean, you know, they always had the same ad in the, uh, in the at the back those, yeah. of the comic. Yeah, yeah. Hero of the beach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come by and kick sand on him and his girl, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm surprised uh, nobody's tried to make a movie out of uh, uh, Hodgson's life because he does have, you know, he basically did everything. I, He's got he's he's a photographer, he's a writer, yeah. he's a sailor, he's a soldier. What didn't he do? Um pretty much he did everything. Mm. He didn't climb any mountains as far as I'm aware, but no. that's basically it. No. Um, yeah, he's always challenging himself. It uh appears to me, you know, I just it, some people just always need that challenge and uh, mm-hmm. that's what he was doing. And it's interesting to kind of speculate as to where that may have come from with him. You know, he was the second son of, I believe, nine children. Wow. And I think either three or four of them died in infancy. And, of course, his parents were very religious. His father was a reverend. And his mother worked with the father in setting up some sort of like aid for underprivileged people. So it was a very religious household, and yet Hudson himself was not religious at all. And so we have to wonder, well, where does this sort of like desire to explore and just put himself and look for dangerous occupations and things result from? There's a somewhat famous story of him in Blackburn, this would be around 1902, mm-hmm. and it shows up in a article which he wrote, and it's downstairs on a bicycle, and it's written as if somebody's reporting seeing this happen. But we pretty much feel that Hudson himself wrote it as PR for his gym. Mm-hmm. And in Blackburn, they had this street which was pretty much so steep that they had converted it to stairs, and it was a type of thing that you could break your neck on. And he decided he's going to go down it on a bicycle. Hmm. And he writes about it in this article, and it's called Downstairs on a Bicycle, a Daring Feat at Blackburn. And this is the type of thing that he does. You know, he goes out and he generates these publicity by doing things like this. And, of course, there's the infamous encounter with Houdini in 1902. Oh, right. Didn't he beat him up or something? Oh, no, no. Um... The way this worked, and I think it was in October of 1902, Houdini came to Blackburn and he issued his usual challenge, which was, if anybody can handcuff me that I cannot get out of, I will donate or give them 25 pounds. And Hodson took the challenge, but he stipulated with it that Hodson himself was to bind him and Hodson was to supply the shackles. And Houdini agreed to this. So this took place at the Palace Theatre, and make a kind of a long story short, Hudson went up and shackled Houdini, and Houdini later said he had never received such violent treatment from anyone. 
because of course yeah, he's like super strong crushing arms right and, and hansen knew his anatomy because he's into physical culture so he knows how the muscles work and the best way to fix them so that they can't move and houdini claimed that the locks had been stuffed which Hodson denied. And it took something like over two hours for Houdini to free himself. When he did, the arms on his shirts were torn. The, he was bleeding because he literally had to rip flesh off to get out oh. of the cuffs. And it was a encounter that would remain with Houdini for the rest of his life. He would write about it later in his career saying how much he hated Blackburn because of this mm. and of course the interesting thing is that after that he was much more cautious about how he issued his challenges because uh -huh. he'd come so quick to being beaten mm. and of course on Hodson's side this was a publicity stunt really for his gym so if he had won and had beaten Houdini he would have been able to use that and probably parlay that into a lot of revenue for his gym and might have stayed open mm, yeah so uh, but I guess we're glad he didn't, though, because that made him write more, right? Yeah, because after the gym closed, probably in about 1903, he had to figure out what else to do for money. He started writing magazine articles about about physical culture, culture and that sort of transitioned into stories? Yeah, he'd already been writing the physical culture articles. So what he then started to do was he started to write articles, I mean, more stories. And from about 1903, we speculate to me about 1907 or so, he wrote in a flurry of activity. I mean, the amount of material which we believe he wrote at that time is just simply amazing. Certainly all the best short stories written during that time, the Karnacki stories were written that time, all four novels were written during that time. And... One of the few things I've managed to do was I found a small packet of letters that he had written to another writer, which were in a collection at the University of Texas at Austin, which I've reprinted on the blog. Oh, cool. And these are about 1905, I believe. And in them, he constantly talks about how many rejections he's getting. Like, like 495 rejections so far, <laughs> 496 rejections. And balanced with how many times he's talking about the rejections, he's talking about how hungry he is because he has no money. <laughs> and he's like, I need to sell these things so I can make money. And he's like writing to this friend for advice on what to do and different places to hit up to sell stuff. So... He was very much aware that if he did not sell what he wrote, he would not eat. You know, wow, I that, know how he feels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, of course, you know, the thing to look at it is, well, that, it's very interesting because his gym closes and he decides to become a writer. We don't know why. We don't know why he suddenly chose to go down that road. Uh, again, we don't have letters, so we can't really tell what he was thinking at the time. You know, it's like, what made him think, okay, my gym closed, I'll be a writer. You know, why didn't he look towards some other sort of job to take on or something, um, blacksmith or something like that? Mm -hmm. uh, and in 1902, 
he would have only been about 25 or so. You know, so he certainly could have continued on to another career. It's just very interesting to me personally that writing is what he chose because we don't have anything that gives any indication that he wrote when he was a child. Mm-hmm. We don't have any juvenilia. We don't have anything that shows, like we do with Lovecraft, we can see, well, you know, Lovecraft started writing when he was like four. You know, and but we don't have anything like that for Hudson. Well, like, I see a, like, a very polished style in his writing. Uh, it, it doesn't come across as like sort of, I mean, except in the case of Out of the Storm, I think uh, it does feel like it's sort of unpolished or such, but uh, I, I'm, I'm willing to forgive it because, you know, it's so short. It gets to the point, and, and then when, once you accept the implausible premise, you know, you're in for a, a really good ride and a really good introduction to Hodgson. But if, if you read uh, The House on the Borderlands, that is, that is uh, as good writing as uh, Algernon Blackwood or Lovecraft. There's no... There's no sense that this is the work of a half, half, you know, half scholared writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, again, it's one of those great mysteries. Where did this come from? You know, it you seems know? to me that he was the type of person that was continually seeking notoriety. Oh yes, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and uh, I'll get recognition from my writing, and I'll make money while I do right. that. And I get recognition by uh, being able to shackle Houdini yep. and yep. the types of things that he did were it's like it, it's we all have that that need for recognition, some more than others. And it looks like this was, a, yeah. uh, you know, you know, and he's very intelligent. He has a tremendous amount of talent and uh, he would be a personality today if, if he was alive. Right. Oh, yeah. He might not be an actor. Mm. Oh, but he'd be a personality, a celebrity of some kind. Uh, Probably, Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? There's a good, he, he, he's almost, uh, <laughs> you know, you could, you could almost, you know, you could, if you look at Arnold's background. Yeah. And you take a, a look at, uh, you know, Hudson's, it's very much, uh, you know, alike. Well, like it's, uh, he wasn't religious, but I mean, he was, uh, he had to no, work his, his way out of the situation. Bit religious, yeah. Uh, Schwarzenegger's family was religious, actually. <laughs> not, not all, not you know, they weren't, uh, you know, missionaries or anything, but they were, uh, they were religious. They well, were I think religious. you make a, a what are they? Yeah. Oh, uh, I think you make a very good point in the fact that Hudson is really looking for attention. And you can look at that through many points of his life. He's really wanting to be noticed, and he wants to be acclaimed. Uh, certainly, he was very devastated by the fact that his novels did not really sell very well. And they got some very good notices, some good reviews, but overall, they did not make him very much money. Hmm. And his biggest hopes were pinned on The Nightland, which came out in 1912, and it did not sell well. Uh, what is there to compare to The Nightland? Wow. That's one of the real strengths of the book is that you really can't compare anything to it. It's unique in all of horror and science fiction literature. Perhaps you could look at some of uh, Stapleton work, Olaf Stapleton. There's right. some okay. combinations there. Um, 
Lovecraft, I think, in many ways is very similar because you're dealing with a far, far future where the sun has died and humanity lives in this giant metal pyramid. Mm-hmm. And there are these incredibly imaginative monsters that are outside of this pyramid constantly trying to like get closer to it so they could just destroy it. And they're held back by a ring of earth fire that has been constructed. And you look at that and you're like, where in the heck did he come up with this? Yeah. Uh, When I, when you read the, the house on the borderland, there's, there's some part of it that seems like that that would be comparable. Yes. But, but the majority of the novel is not about this sort of distant future. Uh, uh, when you read that, that novel, it's like 2001's ending, you know, right. it's like what the hell is going on here? And yeah, what does this all mean? Cause you're going through the novel and it's like, okay, there's this guy in this house and he's being attacked by these swine things. I get that. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's in the far future. And you're like, what? Yeah. And his dog is turning to dust. Yeah. And- and he's sitting in a chair for 10 million years or something. Mm-hmm. And part of that, I think, we do know that he was a fan of H.G. Wells, so you can definitely see some of the time machine in there. Uh, yeah, okay. You know, and one of the things is that on occasion, Hudson would do some reviews for the Bookman magazine, and so we know he read Wells and he was familiar with that. And trying to determine what his influences were is very difficult because they're so removed from anything you could look at. And, and yeah, he's not influenced a lot by the weird tales of other writers, is he? Not really. Nothing that you could really see. Cause you know, around that time you have to remember this is like 1905 or so 1907. Who are the real big weird writers at that time? You don't really have a lot. Mackin has made his Blackwood Blackwood and that's pretty much about it in terms of yeah. real major forces. And especially he's in the UK too, so he's right. not going to, I mean, he, he, uh, he presumably knew a Poe's existence, but that there's no evidence uh, from what I've read of his stuff that he's influenced by Poe at all. I mean, not really I, uh, Lovecraft is far more influenced by Poe than yep. it's much more obvious that he's influenced by Poe than, than Hodgson. Hodgson's is very interesting writer. He is, yes. He's very much an enigma in many ways. You know, I, I wish we knew more about him. I wish we knew what he thought about things. We can look at his writing and speculate, okay, this is what I, how I think he feels about certain things. But we don't really have any proof or anything that we can look at and say, okay, well, he may have written this, but he really felt like this. I wrote an article recently on Hodson's Women, and... I basically examined how the way he portrayed them changed over time. And this is the type of thing we can theorize of this from the texts, but we can't say for certain. Now, somebody could come up with this new pile of letters that they find in a shoebox somewhere, and it could completely throw anything I say out the window. Right, right. You know, because we don't know. And it's very frustrating. Well, my my, uh, I'm I'm less interested in the man himself than than the stories, but I do think that the the man informs the story somewhat, and it makes me more interested in reading mm-hmm. more of his material. But um, I'm an audiobook guy, so I'm hoping that uh, my friend Mike Vendetti will start uh, 
start on on many of these un unknown, almost well, forgotten. You know, stories. actually, I'm I'm as you were we were talking here. I'm uh, on Wikipedia, and uh, he, they published a short story called "The Dream of X," which is huh. a short story of the Nightland. Well, was it like an excerpt or something? No, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting story. Uh, you know, the Nightland is this huge monstrosity of a book. It could probably break mm-hmm. your foot if you dropped it on it. <laughs> and Hudson was very much aware of writers' rights, and he wanted to copyright his work. He could not get American publishers for his novels. So, in the case of like Nightland, what he did was he wrote up a sort of like reader's condensed version of it and he called it the dream of x and he used that to have it published in new york to secure the american copyright he did this for a number of things including karnacki so the dream of x is kind of like a condensed version of the nightland and as such it's much easier to read except if i recall there are no paragraph breaks (laughs) Because <laughs> he wanted to get as much in as he could because he was paying for it. Well, it, it seems that he he's made a mistake that, you know, the copyrights are what were going to save him because they didn't make him enough. I guess he did eventually sell books, right? Well, but, he sold books, but he didn't sell nearly as much as he wanted to. You know, he really thought the Nightland was going to cement his reputation and you know he would be making lots of money and it just didn't sell it was too weird of a book at the time really to sell yeah and he never wrote another novel after that he devoted himself exclusively to occasional articles and short stories and the short stories weren't horror they weren't science fiction they were more adventure based Mm. You know, and again, this relates back to what I was saying on those letters we found. He determined what he could sell, and that's what he wrote. You know, that's so, that's interesting because, like with the audiobooks that I do, uh, I find that I can sell short stories. Audiobooks uh, for me are better than a you know a uh, a long novel. Mm-hmm. And I think with the uh, the audiobook concept, you're 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 listening as opposed to reading, and mm-hmm. you're talking attention span, right? With uh, these things, and that's basically what he was uh, looks like. What he was going after was you know people that you know wanted to you know something short to read yeah. as opposed to something that there's just going to be go on and on and on. Well, you know, the, the Nightlands is uh, well, famously of course, the market art. was. What's what's the what's the length on the boats of Glen Carrick? Is that the first novel? It's the first he, novel he that was novel, right? published, but it's not the yeah, first one that first, he wrote. Oh, which was the first written one? The Nightland. Oh, he wrote the Nightland. Wrote the first. Nightland first. In those oh, letters, oh. I found mentions of what the actual writing order was for his novels, and they're almost completely opposite the publication order. Uh-huh. And so, in fact, he wrote The Nightland first, and he wrote Boats of the Glen Carrig last. And you uh-huh. can certainly see that because there's a progression from Nightland, which is just full of these incredible ideas, to Boats on the Glen Carrig, which is pretty much just an adventure story. 
It's got a lot of horror and science fiction elements, but more or less you're dealing with an adventure story. So there's a real progression for him. Trying Trying to fit himself to the market? Yes, he was trying to write in a sense that would be more popular and successful. Well, you, but you're saying the Ghost Pirates is your personal favorite? It is, yes. So, what's the length on that? Uh, I would say that's a short novel. You know, it's uh, about the same as uh, House on the Borderlands. That's a very short novel. Yeah, probably about the same. Maybe a little bit less. Uh, I find it to be a really wonderful book. It uses a lot of sort of the nautical language and dialects. And I feel he really captures the way it was at sea when he was out there. And it also, for me, has a very interesting concept because he's really talking about it's not ghosts so much as it is another dimension that is sort of seeping over into ours. Mike, Mike, you taking notes? (laughs) I want to hear this book. Yeah, it, it definitely is one of my favorite ones. What, yeah. what is it? The, it? the Ghost Pirates. The Ghost Pirates, yep. The Ghost Pirates. Yep. Well, I'll tell you, it's so, just, you know, I, so the, I really love doing these things. It just, uh, you know, it, it's like doing it. When I, when I do an audiobook, it's, uh, if it's something I enjoy, it's so much easier to do, and you just get into it. So the Ghost Pirates, okay. Yeah, I'm going to have a whole bunch of these things for you. For you, for too long. It's just. <laughs> I love that you're you're really fast too. Like I I I told you about something, and then like uh, a couple of days later, you said like here it is, and I'm like what you're, you're done. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a lot like uh, Hudson, you know. I, I make it up in volume, okay. <laughs> Four hundred ninety six rejections, except yeah, yeah. I mean that's you know, but I, I was you know I used to be in outside sales, and he just had to do, you know, it just. Do more, and you're going to make more. And I've done that with right. audiobooks, also. I've uh, uh, just yeah, you've got like more than a hundred audiobooks. Uh, I was looking at there's like seventy five uh, fiction titles, and there's like way more than that that are nonfiction, right? Yeah, if you go to my you know the the books that I published on audioaudible.com, uh, I, you do the Mike Vendetti search, your books by Mike Vendetti. There's a hundred and eighty. Uh, titles now but some of those are are titles that i've published for other narrators and also titles uh when i called myself john michaels when i first started out and then i uh you know as i got better at uh, doing audiobooks and so forth i fired john michaels because uh, (laughs) and became mike vendetti I don't know. Who you really are? That's who I really am. Now, I don't know what I'm going to do if I get to, if I decide to fire Mike Vendetti. But, you have uh, to change your name to something else. Yeah, but uh, so there. Basically, I have uh, you know, and a lot of what I've I've put on Audible.com are short stories, and uh, but there are as of today 180 on Audible.com. Whoa! Making up for it in volume. Hmm. Yeah, but you're you're doing a lot of short stories though too, right? It's not it's mostly not novels. It's mostly not novels. It uh I did uh Robert E. Lee, uh, you know, a, a book about Robert E. Lee. And that thing is about nine or ten hours. And to do an audiobook, uh you're gonna spend at least six hours to get one hour of audio on the audiobook. 
So I mean, right. that's a that's a big investment. You do a ten hour uh, audio book, you're going to have uh, at least two weeks or two or three weeks uh-huh. of, of doing this thing, and uh, and that does not include all the editing and proofing that goes with it. I think you did a really good job with the uh, audiobook, which uh, we're going to put at the front of this podcast, uh, so uh, you can have a listen to it to uh, and uh, and and see Sam. I mean, you know, you can see uh, what what Mike's Mike's skill brings to this this story. It's I, I think I think people forget that most texts in the pre-radio time mm-hmm. were not meant to be just a piece of paper. They're actually meant to be read aloud. Right. Uh, people, what they would do is you would go to uh, your work and you'd work and then you'd come home and you'd have dinner and then you either play music or you read. Right. But socially, music was a social thing and reading was mostly social. It was like, Okay, let me read from this. And somebody would read aloud and everybody would laugh. And then they'd take turns and maybe somebody doesn't know how to read, right? So I think if you look at like uh, the popularity of uh, Charles Dickens and all of those things, a lot of it is it, it's, it works better when you hear it. You know, I found that also. I found that also. You know, some, some of these uh, writers that just. They're meant to be read aloud. And one thing that's happening with the evolution of uh, audiobooks is that you are getting some very good actors who have started to read audiobooks. I agree. You know, there was a time when, uh, you know, your voiceover people and your actors, you know, wouldn't really look at audiobooks. But uh, with the way that uh, radio stations have, uh, you know, been gobbled up and so forth, there's a lot of out of work uh, voice talent. That's very good, and they've gotten into doing audiobooks, so you're finding uh, better and better quality audiobooks that are available. And uh, just to, I got into it a little earlier, but you are so right with the reading out loud. I mean, it's just it's just a lot of times when I'm doing this, I I picture that I'm sitting reading to a group, and mm-hmm. almost everybody that does audiobooks is reading to someone. You're, you're re- not doing it just for yourself. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to be there listening to it, and I'm going to be, uh, you know, entranced by by the reading. Well, we definitely try to draw you in. <laughs> well, I think this has been pretty good. Good. I've certainly be- enjoyed it. Well, I tell you, what a what a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.